0: We had the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Eldon Yellowhorn and Kathy Lowinger. They wrote the amazing book called What the Eagle Sees, Indigenous Stories of Rebellion and Renewal. Now, Dr. Eldon Yellowhorn of the Pekani Nation is an award-winning author and professor of Indigenous Studies at Simon Fraser University in Burnaby, B.C. He employs archeological methods to study the history of his community in Alberta and his research includes Blackfoot language revitalization using AI and machine learning techniques. Now, you won't find Eldon on social media, but you will find him online and that information is included in the show notes. Now, Kathy Lowringer is an award-winning author whose books include Give Me Wings, how a choir of former slaves took on the world Turtle island the story of north americans first people and what the eagle sees indigenous stories of rebellion and renewal you can find her on instagram and on facebook as well that information is located in the show notes and uh, she currently resides in toronto the time to speak to me today. I know that you're you're probably very busy and uh so I I do really appreciate your time.
1: Certainly my pleasure. Perfect. It's great to talk to you too, Elton. Thank you for inviting me to
0: this (laughs) (laughs) My pleasure. So in in reading your book, i I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um I'm just wondering how was this book actually conceived? How did this uh, process come together? Oh,
1: uh, Kathy, you can... can, Yeah, Eldon, you can go ahead if you want. Oh, why don't you start, Kathy? Okay. Okay. Um, I had always been interested in indigenous history. Mm -hmm. Um, I had, uh, from the time I was an undergraduate about a thousand years ago. Um, and luckily I'd heard about Eldon. Okay. And I'd asked if he would, um if he wanted to write a book together, and uh, to my delight,
2: he said yes.
1: So that was Turtle Island, our first book, Mm -hmm. and then it became sort of a natural extension. Um, Turtle Island took us to 1491, yeah, and and it was sort of a natural extension to bring it up to the present. Okay, perfect. Uh, And Eldon, what did you think initially when you were approached with doing this type of
0: project? Uh, I mean, you, you after you you worked together for Turtle Island, so just that initial contact. Um, what were your thoughts on working on the project?
3: Yeah, well, the uh, the Turtle Island volume was uh, heavily influenced by my own interest in archaeology, and mm-hmm. so uh, talking about archaeology takes us into antiquity. But we decided that the follow-up volume should deal with history, in particular. So we. Started to, to conceive this idea of uh, what the eagle sees as a historical narrative that would put the Aboriginal people's perspective to the forefront and to give us uh, a set balance in telling the story of uh, people in North America. Exactly. So
0: if you would just expand on that a little bit and tell us about the significance of the eagle.
2: Eagles
3: have a very esteemed uh, uh, presence. Mm-hmm. You know, we, the, there's lots of people whose names uh, have ego incorporated into into them, like uh, eagle speaker or uh, mm-hmm. names like that. You know, so it has a, it has a high uh, status in uh, our in our, our culture, and so the. The idea of using the eagle as a, as a metaphor mm-hmm. to organize our book uh, is to also show that you know, uh, history can be viewed from many different levels and mm-hmm. perspectives. You, know, the, you, you see the, the history that's around you from the ground level, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but then as you start to read more detailed, more volumes uh, about history and by different authors you start to see a, a larger picture and it's kind of this idea of the eagle ascending into the sky that from the ground level it only seems uh, a, a limited perspective, but then as it flies higher, it, it sees a bigger picture, and that is uh, the historical of the long arc of history to Definitely.
0: And, and Kathy, I'm just wondering about uh, your thoughts just with respect to uh, why eagles should be revered um, within the indigenous community well,
1: and beyond. I have, to, I have to be clear that I'm not indigenous. Eldon is. Oh, yes. And this is very much Eldon's story. Mm-hmm. My part in this was knowing about kids books mm-hmm. and knowing the context and lack of context often, that kids bring to reading about anything historic mm-hmm. so that was my role in this the expertise and the knowledge the really the, the profundity of this is all Eldons and um, as I began to, to do my my part in the writing and so on um, the ego, Exactly as Eldon described, it was mm-hmm. a symbol for me that, in order to see history, you have to take the long view,
0: mm-hmm. and from that the eagle does. And so I thought it was a very powerful image. Oh, definitely it is. Uh, and and so Eldon, um, with respect to um, the the term indigenous, why should individuals use that particular term? I know that. Um, you know the, the term Indian was is used in some portion of your book, but in terms of addressing all the the nations and the bands, um, should the, the term Indigenous be the preferable term to you to be used? Oh yeah, you know uh, Indigenous people have uh, a larger sense of meaning. When you look at this,
3: it has more international uh, significance because Indigenous people are. Present across the globe, and you know, we also have uh, documents such as the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Mm-hmm, so, when you're talking about you know, uh, Indigenous people, they're not just in North America, you no, know? they're not just in Canada, mm-hmm. they're there are presidents around the globe, and being some kind of partnership with that international sense uh, is, uh, I think, a uh, A sign of our times, you know, the recognition that uh, Native people are becoming more sophisticated in their knowledge of the global community. Mm
0: -hmm. Definitely. And just talk to us a little about uh, the the Northern Trail uh, and the way in which your ancestors followed that particular path.
3: Yeah, the Old North Trail is uh, a well-known route that many people traveled on foot because, of course, there were no beasts of burden until horses uh, came along. Mm. Uh, So everybody had to traverse it uh, on foot. By uh, walking it, you know, walking, uh, you know, that's something I do on a regular basis myself. Okay. When you're walking, you have an opportunity to take in the landscape. You have an opportunity to find landmarks and to think about them because, they're in your vision for a long time, where, mm-hmm. you know, like, today, you know, people, like, the cars, and they tend to zip along, and, you know, you, you see the you see the landscape through the windscreen of your car, mm-hmm. so it doesn't make as big an impression on you, but when you're walking, you did that, you know, so. Uh, the Old North Trail, which, People could follow right from the barren lands of uh, northern Canada all the way down to Mexico. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it gives you, you know, people who have traversed that route uh, get to know every square inch of their journey and, and, you know, it impresses itself in their memory and so it becomes a big part of their uh, cognitive
0: geography. Oh, definitely. And, and Kathy, I'm just wondering with regards to uh, working on this particular text, uh, what were some of the, the challenges and what are some of the, the rewarding uh, portions of this particular project that, um, uh, that you brought, that you took away from it? Well,
1: there, are, there were really two things that mm-hmm. were major challenges yeah. for me. Um, one is keeping in mind what kids know and what they don't know. Mm-hmm. So that, for instance, um, you can't say something like um, uh, a city that a city like, and forgive me for the pronunciation because no one knows how it's really pronounced, but <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Um, uh, as, uh, it was as big as, as London or as big as Rome, so mm-hmm. when you can't take for granted the kids know how big that would be. Oh, yes. So you have to be sure that the context is something that they will understand. Mm -hmm. You can't say, um, uh, you know, well, I think that explains it. You can't use imagery and so on that they may not know. Mm -hmm. So that's a challenge in writing quite complex ideas Mm -hmm. for young people who, Mm -hmm. who will understand the ideas, but you don't want to lose them. As I yeah. get there, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. other thing that was a huge challenge for me was the actual content, mm-hmm. um, which was so heartbreaking. As yes. somebody was not indigenous, who mm-hmm. grew up with westerns, for yeah. instance, yeah. knowing names like Kit Carson and and um, so on as heroes, mm-hmm. and to read to read about them, it was. I can't tell you. I mean. Truly, it isn't an exaggeration to say that I wet buckets of tears at yeah. many points mm-hmm. in learning about it. Not so much in writing, but in learning. Um, and I thought that I knew quite a bit, but as it turns out, I didn't. Mm-hmm. And that was a real challenge. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and there were moments, for instance, when um, the remain, remaining Navajo code talkers mm-hmm. went yes. to the White House. Yes. And, and the ceremony was in front of a painting of Andrew Jackson. Yes. Who was monstrous. Mhm. There's no other word for what yeah. he did to human, his fellow human beings. Yes. Um it, it Oh, I could talk
0: about this for <laughs> <laughs> you. Yeah, yeah. These were my challenges. Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree 100%. And uh, it is extremely heartbreaking. Uh, and the, the co talkers, especially being individuals and in, in a group of people that were so crucial uh, to the uh, d- mm-hmm. d- destruction of fascism. Uh, and so mm-hmm. for them to be um, honored in the White House is one thing, but for them to be standing in front of a portrait of Andrew Jackson, who. Uh, you know, brutalized and pretty much ignored a standing order by the Supreme Court is, to- is completely insulting, and as, as I agree wholeheartedly that it is very heartbreaking. Um, so, Eldon, in putting together uh, this particular text, um, as, you know, we are both saying that it's extremely heartbreaking, how, how did you keep that sense of optimism just in terms of, you know, putting those stories out there to be, to be consumed, to be read, and, and to be learned about? Well, definitely,
3: I bring my own sense of optimism. Mm -hmm. I am, I am by nature an optimistic person, you know, and hopeful that uh, things can be made better. You know, Uh, I hold a lot of optimism and hope about the future and Mm -hmm. the next generation. And so, uh, bringing these stories to the younger generation is about letting them know that. There are this, there's this very dark side of history, but out of that comes something incumbent, is brighter, you know. And so, for example, uh, we were able to highlight some of the people who have been very influential in my own life, you know, mm-hmm. like Beatrice uh, Medicine or John yes. Lockwood or mm-hmm. Gloria cromer Webster. You know, these are individuals who, you know, as young people, lived through very dark periods, uh, but. Their own actions, you know they they managed to rise above those that darkness and to really bring a a, a nice uh, story to its full uh, uh, to its full measure you know mm-hmm. so just having that opportunity to you know look at people that have influences on me and
0: to bring their stories to the forefront uh, that that is a, a good part of it mm-hmm. I definitely agree and this question is actually for both of you so in, in learning these different things I'm just wondering what your thoughts were uh, with regard to embedding this type of information within not only the Canadian school system but also uh, in the American school system and, the, and, and how, because these stories are extremely important this is part of our history um, so what are your thoughts just with regard to more students learning about this segment of history?
3: Well, I'll start. The, I'll start this one. Okay. Uh, since I uh, since I am a teacher, and, uh, being a professor at a university, uh, this is very much a part of my own uh, stock and trade. You know, um, mm-hmm. being a, a professor of Indigenous studies, it's about uh, bringing this academic subject and, and translating it into. Uh, that are comprehensible to an audience they may not be. You know, I, I have spent a good chunk of my time uh, studying and researching, uh, and bringing the stories that I've uh, found to my students uh, makes that very uh, gratifying. You know, mm-hmm. Being able to impart this information and to uh, bring it, like for example, the uh, archaeological. Uh, Sites that I've worked at and mm-hmm. where I've had the opportunity to excavate—that's uh, something that not everybody gets to do. So no. they only—they only have a vicarious impression of what I'm experiencing. You know, mm-hmm. so it—it it, uh, it falls on me to bring that experience in a, in a manner that they can uh, fully appreciate.
0: Definitely yes.
3: Can I can I add
1: something to that? Oh yes, please. I have, um, I have worked in, just on the publishing end of things for mm-hmm. many years, mm-hmm. and I have to say that Eldon is extremely rare in as an academic mm-hmm. in his ability and his desire to communicate with the general public mm-hmm. and specifically with young people. Yeah. Sometimes academics. You know, live in their own world, and it becomes sort of a, a closed, a closed circle. If you know what I mean. Yes, um, I do. And to make academic information available to everybody, I think is the highest possible calling, and um, I, that's one of the reasons I'm so very glad that uh, that I'm able to work with Eldon. Because okay. it, it it's it's rarer than than you would think mm-hmm. that it, um, an academic is able to to convey this huge body of knowledge in a way that the general public can appreciate it.
0: Oh, that's definitely extremely valuable. And as as you're talking, it just reminded me of a quote by by Einstein where he said that, uh, you know, you want to make things simple not simpler, uh, which I think just <laughs> so, <laughs> which definitely speaks to the heart of uh, what you're talking about. So, Eldon, you mentioned something very interesting earlier um, that you go on excavations and so I'm just wondering what uh, were some of the most memorable excavations that you've been on to date?
3: oh you know all of them are and it's difficult to choose one but you know I will say that the one that had the most impact on me was uh, back in in 1988 I had just uh, graduated from uh, an undergraduate program at at, the University of Calgary I I had done a uh, degree in archaeology and then I had gotten a a job as a curator at at a museum in Calgary, Uh, but then after that uh, internship ended, uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, receive a fellowship from the Smithsonian Institution. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, and then Mm. as a result of that, I got to go and work with the curator of North American Archaeology at a site that he was excavating in uh, Colorado, and that was such a a moment of change for Mm -hmm. me, you know. Because uh, it, it propelled me into my career. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, you know, I, I think I would put myself in the, the dilettante category <laughs> <laughs> you know, of you know. and I just, uh, just had that opportunity to work with uh, somebody who was doing, like, primary research mm-hmm. and to be a part of that and, and working at the site that was, you know, over 11,000 years old. Wow. Uh, when I got back to Canada, I knew that I had to uh, uh, apply to graduate school, and mm-hmm. I knew that this was going to be my career. So I, I really look at that as being the moment where uh, my my future career really came
0: into focus. Oh, definitely. I, I can just only imagine the impact that that had, especially as a as a graduate, uh, fresh from academia. Um, Kathy, I'm wondering, what about you? What are some memorable moments in the publishing industry that you've had today?
1: Oh, well... Yeah. Oh, that, that would take some some thinking, but there have been some wonderful, mm-hmm. wonderful moments. But the most exciting things are when you see a manuscript by a great writer mm-hmm. who hasn't published before, mm-hmm. and it just gives you chills when you know this person is going to be is going to go on to become a major writer. There's somebody who is writing novels now who's just fantastic, mm-hmm. who wrote their, one of her very first books for me, a woman named Susan Nelson, oh, okay. um, who, who may be people may know, but working with her for the first time was thrilling. So that finding something that's brand new is a great thrill. But I also have, I don't have remotely, not not 1% of the experience that Eldon has had, but I have worked on archaeological digs, or I did so about 50 years ago. And the one little spark that I may share with him is that you never get over the sense when you do find something or when you're working with something really old that a human person, a person with feelings and thoughts and mm-hmm. so may have touched the same thing that you're looking at. Yes. And that, that spark is something that I'd encourage anybody who wants to go into archaeology, that spark is just an amazing thing. Mm-hmm. It didn't lead me into a career um, in archaeology, <laughs> but it's still something that I remember.
0: Well, you still remember? Wow. Okay. Um, and, and just speaking about archaeology, um, so what was the significance of uh, archaeologists finding an obsidian? Uh, and you mentioned that in your in your book. Oh. The, uh, it uh it's such a great example of mm-hmm. how things moved around and how an
1: object you can you you're a detective you deduce from it where is this from Eldon can talk about it more, but it, it gives you a whole story behind it mm-hmm. of where did it come from who dug it up who traded it um, how did it get to be where it was mm-hmm. um, what was the context over and out Eldon <laughs> <laughs> Well, I have to I have to concur with
3: Kathy. I mean, that, that idea, uh, the sense of wonder, that has never left me. And every time I, I go to uh, work in the field, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you find things that have significance to some people. Sometimes, you know, like for example, I, I was doing uh, work on my own check and uh, we found a uh, we found a little plastic toy to of a uh, horse, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, I showed it to my older brother, who you know, suddenly gave a really detailed description of it, and it turned out it was his toy that he had lost. <laughs> 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 oh, oh, oh. He hadn't seen it in like seventy years. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: fantastic. Um, so another thing too, I was, I was reading about that I found interesting was the uh, shamanism. So I'm just wondering. What, what type of role does that play within Indigenous culture? I guess we can even go Elden.
3: Okay, um, well, you know, shaman in uh, well not just Blackfoot tradition, but also in many other communities. Yes. Uh, are, are central figures, central characters. You know, they are they are often the people who are able to communicate with the ethereal world that is all around us. You know, because we live in this spirit haunted universe and spirits are all, of, all all around us activating uh, and animating uh, natural phenomena, you know, like the spirit of the wind or the spirit that causes winter to come. You know, these are, these are the kinds of spirits that we uh, have all around us. And for somebody to, who is able to transcend this physical world and to communicate with those uh, into the spirit realm it makes them very powerful individuals, but also it makes them people who have the advice for, for us commoners who don't have that insight about uh, what causes things to happen. Yeah,
0: definitely. Um, and what you're just talking about actually reminds me of the, some tales that I read within your book, uh, such as, you know, the rabbit bringing fire to, to his people. So I'm just wondering, um, what, why are those tales important to, um, indigenous communities, and why are they also important to, um, all of Canadians, uh, in different, in different communities? you talk
1: there? Okay. Um, stories, stories like rabbits, um, mm-hmm. which are shared by a, a number of, uh, different nations in Turtle Island, are, um i think are part of the way that human beings process information we can remember things as part of a narrative Mm -hmm. so virtually every culture tells stories as a way to teach and the stories are often funny or scary but but they're interesting yes as they're passed on um they they are very important teaching tools they also link um the people who are the repository of the stories, elders, mm-hmm. um, with younger generations, so that becomes a, a way that ties the community together. But this isn't exclusive to um, to North America by any means. No. I think I think it's part of being human mm-hmm. that we want narrative to explain the world to us. Mm-hmm. And the stories um, we we were very. Um, we try to be very careful with the stories because these are cultural property. Yes. And uh, first of all, the assumption is that the stories are for children mm. and they're not. They're, these are big, big stories. Definitely. Um, even if they're, um, they may be as a, as rabbits is sort of funny mm. um, or sometimes raucously funny. <laughs> um, but we don't want to appropriate other people's culture. Yes. But on the other hand, if you're, if you if your goal is to teach people about indigenous culture, the tool that would have been used would have been stories. Definitely. And so it, it's, uh, I think, an important, we took it very seriously.
0: Mm-hmm. And how were you making those determinations, just in terms of the stories that you wanted to include and, and the ones that you did not want to include?
1: Indigenous. Um, most indigenous, uh, communities now have a protocol for asking for permission for use of stories. Okay. And, um, it's, it's quite explicit. Okay. There were, there were some stories, or there was certainly one story, where the nation, um, asked us not, or I was the one that went after that permission and asked me not, they asked me not to use it.
0: Oh, I see, okay. And so you did not so, it? Okay. So, of course we didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh... It's
1: a, This is a really big issue because for years and years, publishers have looked at indigenous stories um, and thought, oh, because they, they're about animals or mm-hmm. about, um, you know, adventures and so on, they must be for kids. So let's yes. do a picture book about them and so on. Mm-hmm. And so I believe I don't want to speak to the indigenous For any indigenous community, but the sense that they may be debased or simplified or or removed from their spiritual Mm -hmm. context um, has made people very wary about them.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes, and as you're speaking, I'm thinking about, uh, you mentioned earlier, cultural appropriation, and one of the stories that actually came to my mind was the story of Pocahontas, uh, because Mm -hmm. it was also included in your uh, in the book. So I'm just wondering if you would just expand on that particular story, because I don't think a lot of people understand the real story behind Pocahontas. It's,
1: it's a, ter- a terrific example of mm-hmm. this, yes. where Pocahontas has been distorted and distorted. Yes. The fact is that she probably was a peacemaker. Mm-hmm. She probably did want people to get along. Mm-hmm. And But the um, her circumstances of saving John, John Smith was totally misunderstood. Mm-hmm. It, it was part of a ritual that was uh, you know was commonly practiced, and the, the English people watching it completely misunderstood what was going on. Yes, she had a lot of work to do to try to make them yeah.
0: understand what. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, but it's interesting yeah. because I think that that particular story yeah. serves as a metaphor as well, um, with regards to. Uh, you know, re- with regards to viewing stories and actually taking those particular stories and then making them palatable to uh, an audience that may exist within that particular type of community. Uh, but I think as we stand at this particular moment that people are getting a lot more sensitive to those types of issues uh, and it's happening less and less, uh, w- which I think definitely is, is a fantastic thing. And it's really good to hear because I, uh, I did not know this, that there's actually now... a you know, a protocol in which you have to go through in order to get get permission to, to use the different stories that you could not and you're prevented from just using any type of narrative that you'd want and then mm-hmm. for the purposes of your book and then including it in, in the manuscript, so... Yeah, that, that's fantastic. Um, one of the things that I read as well that I was not aware of is the effect that um, I think it was a, an individual from the Iroquois Federation had on the, uh, the creation of the United States uh, and the advice that that particular individual imparted to Benjamin Franklin. Um, so if you would, Eldon, could you just tell us a little bit more about that?
3: Yeah, there's a uh, historical documents about how uh, the framers of the U.S. Constitution, the people who were writing the uh, original document of the Mm -hmm. U.S. Constitution, uh, referred to the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. Yes. And how the, the, well, it started out as five nations and then it became the six nations, of how they were able to uh, create this confederacy where each, individual group was like a, a state onto themselves mm-hmm. but that the larger Confederacy also had a leadership role in determining what was going to happen you know, uh, so for example when you have uh, the different levels of uh, you have the, the super state I hope you can call it that yes. and then you have these uh, sub sub uh, I uh, let's call them polities <laughs> <Okay. laughs> that are able to make their own uh, decisions based on their own priorities. And, mm-hmm. uh, we had a similar structure with the uh, Blackfoot Confederacy where you had the three tribes, the Dikani, Nakaina, and Siksika, who, although they were nominally independent and made their own decisions for themselves, they did come together. Uh, you know, there was a common a threat or a common uh, problem that they had to deal with, you know, in a similar way that uh, the air club. They had to make something up so out of their realm of uh, experience, so what did they do, they look to their Adaneshawnee uh, neighbors and found the model that they could use.
0: Definitely, yeah, no, I was really amazed to, to read that particular passage. Um, so with regards to something like the, the Strawberry Festival, um, if you would just speak a little bit about uh, the significance uh, of that. Uh, okay,
3: well, I'll take this one on. Uh, yeah, please. You know, uh, it goes right back to the the origin story of the Hanadana Shani when Skywoman uh, sky woman falls from the sky, and, you know, she's uh, trying to hang on to uh, get her balance back, and she grabs two uh, plants to try and anchor her, but they, they come loose, and they come down. They fall with her down to, to earth, and one of them is tobacco, and the other was uh, strawberries. Mm-hmm. And so just uh, connect there, uh, and it really, like strawberries were one of the few uh, dessert, if you call it dessert plants <laughs> that uh, cultivated the native people, cultivated in their gardens. Mm-hmm. So it had a, it had a very uh, significant uh, presence there, and, and and in many ways it was a way of for them to connect back to their origins, because you know, this memory of uh, strawberries coming from the sky world and uh, having this kind of a uh, magical aura around them as a result, Uh, and then they have them in their garden as a a way of uh, telling them why we grow these plants, and why we curate them, and why we look after them, you know, because they have this uh, central role in our origin.
0: Oh, definitely. Um, I'm wondering, what type of an impact have you seen with the book that you've that you've produced just with regards to schools uh, and, and to students, uh, what type of feedback are you receiving from teachers and educators about your book?
1: Oh, Kathy, Kat, you can go ahead. Okay. Um, we have been nominated and have won all kinds of, of awards. Wow, okay. Uh, and the in, in the children's book world, the mm-hmm. most important thing um, Reviewing journals, Curtis School Library yes. Journal, and uh. book list have all given it, uh, given it um, starred reviews, which is extremely unusual. Oh, yeah. So obviously, um, I think there's a tremendous interest amongst teachers, mm-hmm. and in terms of kids, um, the feedback that I've certainly received has been
3: fantastic for these books. People really want this information. Indigenous kids want it, and kids who aren't indigenous. It. Mm-hmm. I just like to add to that that sure. the, uh, I have my own anecdotes. Uh, okay. People that I'm familiar with who are teachers, you know, and how their students have responded to the to the books, and, and also just the the fact that there is an appetite out there for this kind of literature because mm-hmm. it's not been something that has been generally available before. Mm-hmm. So people are really uh, welcoming it and. Recognizes that it is uh, filling a filling a niche that had not uh, been uh, there were many books in there before. Definitely. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I, I was just going to add that the
1: books are unusual um, in that they really try. Um, I think both of us have tried really hard to bring literary value yes like good to make them good reading for kids they're Mm -hmm. not just sort of listed facts or fact points Mm we try to um to we try to help kids see the story Mm -hmm. and um I hope that we succeed in that because that's what makes it interesting for kids to read.
0: Oh, definitely. And I think one of the things that you've done uh, really, really well as well is just to impart uh, empathy within your text as well because there's certain sections in your book where you're calling people to imagine putting yourself in these particular positions. Uh, and I think that um, for me, it, it was very effective just in terms of bringing me in within that narrative. So. Uh, This is a question for both of you as well, so I'm just wondering what your thoughts are with regards to the importance of embedding empathy within your
1: text. Can I just say from from the publishing and editing side of things, what distinguishes these books from textbooks is there's a very, very strong narrative voice. Mm -hmm. Um these are not meant to these aren't textbooks these have a very strong point of view mm-hmm. and so we deliberately say things like um uh, you know if an event was terrible, we say it was terrible yes, if it was fabulous, we say that because the narrative's voice is what makes it interesting mm-hmm.
3: and and it distinguishes them from um a, kid, a book kid has to read because it's a text mm-hmm i I'll just add to that too that um uh, from uh you know the few adults that i've uh, talked to like grown ups really like them too uh. I've, I've heard several people tell me that they really enjoy reading, them. and one of the things that they really appreciate about them is that they are non-linear. That you don't have to start on page one and then go all the way through. Yes, you, you can open up at any section, and, and there's a snippet there or a snippet here that they can read like within a, a short time period that they might have, and uh, still learn something from that. Oh, definitely. Uh,
0: Yeah, I I agree. You can open it pretty much at any point and and go through it. Um, And you don't necessarily, as you're saying, have to read it from from cover to cover. Although if you did want to read it from cover to cover, it's still extremely compelling. So I'm wondering, there was a lot of different individuals uh, in this book um, that are um, really, really uh, sort of Compelling and visceral individuals. So I'm just wondering, what was your process in terms of identifying these different individuals to include in your book? Well, one of them was that you know there are individuals who have compelling stories that mm-hmm. have
3: to be told, and, mm-hmm. and you know whose, whose narrative has not really given enough uh, focus in, in general literature, and so it gives us an opportunity to highlight uh, people who had a, a very compelling story and. They presented to an audience that might not have not heard of them before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of them actually that that stood
0: up for me was um, Madame Uh and oh. yeah, and and the way that uh, you know she was the one to be left behind—not really necessarily left behind—but uh, there's sort of um, a thought that you left there that uh, leads the reader to believe that she actually. Uh, that actually, she stayed behind in order to save the greater community. I uh, so I thought she was extremely compelling.
1: Yeah, there's there's actually very little written about her, mm-hmm. and um, once I started finding um, finding information about her, I I still got many many questions because the information is so sketchy. Mm-hmm. And then that's how actually
3: often the case with many of the characters that people find in, in our uh, book is that uh, there's so little written about them, or they're so, uh, we have to only we only learn about them from bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. It's kind of getting this uh, sidelong glimpse of something that is happening, but you, know, you, only, uh, you only catch uh, a little bit of the story, and you have to kind of use your own imagination to, to flesh out the.
0: Oh, definitely. Um, And and one of the things that we talked about earlier was just, uh, you know, the Trail of Tears and and that, um, you know, heartbreaking period. So if you would just expand a little bit just with regards to the, um, I believe it was the Indian Removal Act that was instituted by Andrew Jackson. Um, So either one of you could go go ahead. Let's uh, let's go with Eldon.
3: Okay, yeah, you know. But it's actually something that I came aware of very early on in, in my own uh, reading about mm-hmm. the Cherokee and the talk about removal from their homelands yes. and being forced to go west of west uh, of the Mississippi River mm-hmm. into what was then known as Indian Territory. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it also brought me into a knowledge of a, an even greater story there and it's referred to as the myth of the mound builders. Oh, this When, uh, when uh, European settlers started to occupy the Ohio River Valley, they started to come across all these artificial uh, creation, mounds, and you know uh, things that were created by Native people. But in their minds, they just could not give uh, the Native people the credit for building these structures. So they created this idea of this uh, race of white people. Mm-hmm. To, uh, had occupied the valleys and, and and then whose civilization was destroyed by the Indians. So for them, it was a way of saying, "Well, we're just taking back land that originally belonged to white people and mm-hmm. the Indians who have, uh, dispossessed them. So now, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, we're just taking it back." You know, so it, it got into, it got into that uh, larger narrative that uh, a story that the white settlers told themselves about
0: their uh, country that they were taking from the Indians. Mm-hmm, definitely. Yeah. Do you think though that that's representative of um, the history books and the lessons that we learn within the educational system just with regard to uh, you know certain people within uh, certain communities um, ignoring or or just debasing the history of uh, the people whose land there, that they're actually in in order to justify uh, their brutality? and their propensity to take land resources away from uh, the
3: indigenous people that, that live on that land. Well, I can, I can speak to my own uh, experience as an archaeologist and anthropologist because mm-hmm. that became a, a large motif in anthropology in the 19th century, the idea of the vanishing race. Mm-hmm. And this is something that, you know, that they talk about in that, uh, one of the closing chapters where yes. you have the, the horse, horseman of the native warrior on a horse and it's called the end of the trail uh, and that itself is a metaphor of the uh, idea of the punishing race, you know, mm-hmm. this idea that uh, native people were just not Suited for civilization, mm-hmm. and wherever civilization expanded to, uh, the native people disappeared. Rather than rather than people being uh, self-reflective and saying, "What is it that we're doing to these people that causes them to uh, disappear?" They're saying, "Oh, well, we're, we're the civilization, and they're just not suited to the kind of civilization that uh, you know the savage. The savage mind is simply not uh, mm-hmm. capable of." Incorporating civilized thought. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, it's it's very unfortunate. Um, So uh, when you that actually just reminded me of the uh, you know the residential schools and and the detrimental effect that that had um, within you know, various indigenous communities. And I think Canada as a whole actually suffered as well. Um, So if you would, both of you can speak to this just with regards to, you know, the detrimental impacts that continue to this day as a result of, you know, from those indigenous schools. Uh, And if you could also speak to as well the the issue of uh, the census taking and giving people codes uh, to identify them, uh, I think also plays into this as well.
1: Okay,
3: Kathy, why don't you start here?
1: Um I'm not quite sure um, I don't even know where to start with this, but yes. the residential schools were part of an of an absolutely clearly articulated uh, policy of assimilation. Mm-hmm. And assimilation is racism. Because yeah. what you're saying is if you want if you want a good life, you have to be me. you have mm-hmm. to be like me. Mm-hmm. And, and it's this deeply Im- embedded, sense that my way is mm-hmm. the only way and if I'm magnanimous then I will show you how to join my way mm-hmm. instead of seeing that other people's ways have their own merit that it, this is it's just not an argument that you can make mm-hmm. uh, without being racist Yes. so uh, the residential schools were a huge part of this but there were other things as well um mm-hmm. In terms of religion, yes. um, you name it. Mm-hmm. In wanting to erase, and then people articulated it, wanting to uh, kill, kill the culture, mm-hmm. so that there are no more Indians. They didn't necessarily want to kill mm-hmm. the, the human beings, and some of them did, but um, they wanted to kill the culture. Yes. And the residential schools were were. Uh, a very, very effective way of doing that—you remove people from their families, from their family systems, mm-hmm. from their communities, mm-hmm. from their languages, from uh, the the opportunity to learn their own culture and to pass their own culture on. You're cutting them off from everything.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, hundred. Yeah, I agree. And also, as you're speaking, I'm thinking about the um, the staggering uh, numbers in which individuals were lost uh, during the gold rush, for example, that's one of the things that kind of struck me is that the population went from 300,000, I believe, to 15,000. And so when you think about that, it's really, really heartbreaking uh, to know that all those individuals were lost. So uh, I'm wondering with respect to moving forward, because Eldon, as you said, you know, these um, instances should be definitely acknowledge, but at the same time, there's also a way to move forward. So, how do we uh, move forward in a way that this type of, um, you know, tragedy does not reoccur in the future?
3: Uh, Well, one thing I can say is that, you know, by by knowing history, by by studying history, it gives us a context for our lives, you know? And Mm -hmm. I, I can see that today in the Native community because for so long, was, we were always given this idea that uh, it was our fault uh, mm-hmm. that we were somehow deficient that mm-hmm. you know, we, our, our minds couldn't absorb uh, civilized thought mm-hmm. uh, and now we're gradually coming to the realization you no know, it wasn't our fault and it was the fault of people who invaded our country that, who kind of dispossessed us mm-hmm. and in fact it's becoming a, a narrative that uh, native people uh, are taking today and Suddenly realizing, this is what this was what caused our community to be so uh, dysfunctional. You know that there's so many social problems today, but it's not because there's something inherently wrong with us that we uh, we live like this. But rather, it was something that was done to us that caused this. You know, and so by having that realization, uh, people are able to start saying, "Okay, well." Now we can do something about it, you know. Uh, for mm-hmm. example, when uh, we know about the residential schools, yes. well, now we know, uh, you know, like ideas of post-traumatic stress and mm-hmm. uh, things like this. We can actually start doing uh, psychological treatment to help people overcome that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and do you think, and this is for both of you as well, that the um, the knowledge uh, of these atrocities that happen definitely will not definitely will prevent us from doing. Uh, repeating them, but uh, with regard to the advent of technology and the way in which it's very easy now to share information, uh, I'm wondering what type of role do you think that would play uh, with regards to not only preventing uh, this type of situation from happening again, but also to empower uh, individuals within the indigenous communities? Well, I will start on
3: this one. Yeah. Uh, you know, Kathy and I have started working on a third book together. Oh, great. And, uh, yeah, and this one is going to be more thematic uh, about, uh, you know, uh, science and technology. Oh, great, okay. Uh, and it's, it's Liam saying, you know, well, our knowledge has been devalued for such a long time mm-hmm. that here we have this opportunity now to, to reconsider it and to reframe it in a way that uh, a modern audience will recognize it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just as sophisticated as uh, any other way of knowing things, you know. Oh, uh, so, we, we have this opportunity to, to break free of that mold uh, of, you know, like our knowledge is inferior the uh, mm-hmm. to, to demonstrate how it actually is, uh, you know, the, the basis of uh, observation and experience, uh, those sorts of things.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh,
3: that sounds, sounds fantastic. And I, if I can add to that, that not only, not only um, are we trying to,
1: trying to convey how very rich this body of, an extensive, this enormous body of knowledge is, but how extraordinarily relevant it is, uh, right now. Mm -hmm. Um, Principles of sustainability, principles of giving back. Now, in other words. not exploiting the world, not exploiting the water, uh, the earth and so on, mm-hmm. but making sure that it's there for generations to come um, is something that is vital for everybody to, to, uh, to understand to the point where places like um, New Zealand have taken um, Indigenous knowledge and actually um, encoded it in law. Okay. And I hope that we get to that point. Mm-hmm. But when I look at what we're doing to the environment, and so on, um, and I think about the principles of, as I said, of sustainability, yes. there's a lot to be learned there.
0: Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah,
1: I think, there, I think there's a movement now to really look at the environment
3: yes. as uh, a natural person with its own rights. You know, for example, the, a river has the right to flow free. So why are we? Uh, dams all over the place. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the environment has a, a right to uh, exist as an ecosystem. Why are we Why are we clear
0: cutting forests in, in order to deprive that ecosystem of its right to exist? Mm-hmm. I, I definitely agree. But with regard to that, I'm wondering, um, how are in, indigenous communities and people within those communities using the courts to to claim land? Um,
3: well, I will. I will say, you know, living in the living in the province where land claims are still an outstanding issue,
2: mm-hmm.
3: and, and really a, a one that brings people into the into the very conflicted zone. Yes. Uh, you know, you just think about the idea of pipelines across uh, yes. territories mm-hmm. where people want to um, maintain the territory, integrity of their territory. Uh, we're saying, you know, like the economic benefits of lay uh, whatever cultural concerns you might have, uh, people are, they see the courts as being the shield that, that they can use to uh, force governments to reconsider how they're going to be treating the environment uh, and to really give the, the environment the uh, profile that has been neglected up until up now, you know, because up, up until you know, recently we've always looked at development as being laudable, and this <laughs> idea of mm-hmm. development as being yes. our cost and goal of economic growth, and now we're starting to see the limits uh, to that. Mm, definitely.
0: Kathy, oh, C- it sounded like you wanted to say something there as well. No, no, no. <laughs> okay. And, um, you know, indigenous cultures also are really... Um, uh, so, they're similar to the, the culture that I come from with regards to appreciating that oral tradition. So, uh, with regard to that, um, what are some of the most significant um, stories that you came across that weren't necessarily um, within the book, but they may have been stories that uh, inspired the stories that you actually chose to be in your book? Yeah.
3: Well, that's a that's a good question. You know, I, I can I can actually talk about those because you know, when I was growing up uh, in my reserve and Southern Alberta, the Canadian nation, you know, I I would I would often hear these stories like from my parents. Yes. Yeah, and, you know, and then, you know, some of them I remember the exact moment when I heard that, and then uh, many years later, as uh, as a student of anthropology, I was. Uh, I, I picked up this volume by Clark Whistler called oh. "The Mythology of the Blackfoot Indians. Oh, wow. And I started reading it through, and all of a sudden I was reading in English the very same stories that I was told when I was uh, a young person, you know, and it <laughs> just made me realize, oh, there's this whole body of literature that comes from our
1: community that I didn't even know about. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Kathy. I was going to say, one of the things that, um, you know, it's like one of those those ways of seeing that are really eye-opening to you. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that all the way through my going through, my journey through these books, has been um, met the role of memory. Mm-hmm. And be, with cultures that are, they weren't just, culture wasn't just passed down orally. There were pictographs. There were forms of writing. There are all kinds of other ways to record history. Mm-hmm. But I'm astonished at how much we have lost the lost valuing history of um, memory, rather. Mm-hmm. The, the, I, I can't remember now, but the, the actual numbers. So forgive me if I'm wrong on this. But I believe that um, uh, if you asked somebody um, in, in Navajo who was uh, responsible for plants, and for medicinal plants, they mm-hmm. can name 750 different plants. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not, um, and of course, long, long series of stories and so on. And for some reason, we have in modern society—I don't, I can't speak for around the world—but mm-hmm. we don't value memory. Mm-hmm. We don't. We don't. Teach it's, I don't memorize anything. Mm-hmm. And I don't understand why not. Memory is like a muscle. So th- that's just been my tiny little thing that I wish we could have gone on a, an absolute rant. About. <laughs> 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 it's not appropriate. <laughs> okay. um, well, that
0: actually brings us to the end. Um, Kathy and Eldon, thank you so much for joining me today. I uh, Really, really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much. My pleasure. Well, thank you, as well. I really appreciate the opportunity. And I look forward to uh, to hearing more from you, Eldon, fairly soon, okay? Okay. <laughs> All right. All right, take care now. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye, you too.
0: We would like to send our gracious thanks out to dr eldon yellowhorn and kathy lowringer for a fantastic talk please be sure to pick up their book what the eagle sees indigenous stories of rebellion and renewal and also follow them on social media and check them out online As always, we're more than happy to reach out to the types of creatives that you want to listen to and learn more from. So please include that in your notes to us. And also, do not forget to leave your rating on iTunes as well. Uh, That would definitely help us out. So until next time, please remember, these are our stories.